We are in the midst, or were in the midst of a series called Whatever It Takes. And the first two weeks of the series, we looked at two wealthy individuals that had similar choices, and one made the wrong choice, and one made the right choice. We looked at the story of the rich young ruler who was given the option of Jesus to follow him. All he had to do was to give up his material possessions that were so dear to him and to sell them to the poor, take up basically his cross and follow Jesus. He chose not to. It says that he walked away sad. Just a few verses later is another rich man, not only a rich man, but a man who was rich because he had gotten his wealth through traitorous, sinful ways. He's given the option to come and to eat with Jesus, and he does and accepts the offer, and his life is forever changed, and he pays back all that he owes. He makes significant change in his life, and he follows the Lord. The question becomes for us, so what does that look like in our lives? And Jesus follows the story of Zacchaeus with the parable that is familiar and yet different. It's similar to parables we have in other Gospels, but a little bit different. And it's on the same theme, basically, that you have been given something. The question is, what will you do with what you have been given? Starting in verse 11 of chapter 19, it says this. As they were listening to him. Now, who is they and what are they listening to? It, it really is literally when they have questioned him about Zacchaeus. And he says, salvation's come to this house. And that I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the very next verse. As they were listening to him, he went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. So Luke, there's this theme in the book of Luke that Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem and that he is going towards it and that the book has this concept of him marching towards the inevitability of the cross and the resurrection. The people that are around him, the disciples, the followers, the twelve think that he is going to claim a throne. He is going to claim a kingdom. He's talked about the kingdom of God again and again, especially in the book of Matthew. He speaks over and over about the kingdom of God. And they think that what's going to happen is that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to rally the Jewish people. And he is going to take control of the kingdom that they think is rightfully theirs. And Jesus begins to prepare them for what's actually going to happen. Therefore, he said in verse 12, a nobleman traveled to a far country. That's Jesus for our purposes here. He's telling them that at some point soon, I'm going away. To receive for himself authority to be king and then return. Now, obviously for us on the other side of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension and the coming again. We're not at the coming again yet. But we see, obviously, what's happening here is Jesus is going to fulfill his duty on earth, be able to rescue us from our sins, bring power back to that over death because of his resurrection, ascend to the Father where he is going to be hailed as king because of the work that he has done, as well as the position of who he is. And then at some point he's coming back. And until that moment, it says in verse 13, 
He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and told them, exchange in business until I come back. Now, here's the reality. The ten servants are us, the church. I really don't know why uh, sometimes in Scripture they don't just, they translate all the other words in Scripture to help us to have a better understanding of what they mean. None of us in this room, my guess, unless you're a deep Bible student, have any idea how much a mina is. Right? Are you here? I mean, nobody lately has says, man, I wish I could get a hold of a two or three minas. Man, my life would be so much better if I could grab a mina every now and then. Right, we don't. We just don't think of that, right? Some of you are like, "Is he even saying that word right? Is it mina?" Well, how do you say it, right? So I, I wish they just put in even what it is. A mina was a fourth of a year's wages, three months' wages. So, in and just kind of in general terms, if the average uh, income somewhere around sixty thousand, just say I, I don't know if that's what the statistics are, but fifteen thousand dollars, basically. Now, Matthew, in his version of this, makes it even more because he talks about talents, and talents are like a couple of years' wages. But here, even, none of us in this room would be upset if someone just came up to us and said, hey, I'm going away for a little bit. I'm going to give you some money to, to help take care of some things while I'm gone. Here's 15 grand. Now, if that's not very much money to you, I'd love to give you my Christmas list and we can have a conversation, right? So he gives them $15,000 and he says, conduct business until I get back. Basically, this is not charity. This is not, this is, I'm going away. It is now your responsibility to use a biblical phrase. You are my ambassadors. You are my workmen. You are the ones that are carrying on the work that I have been doing here. And here's seed money for you to do it. Now, verse 14, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Just reminding us that even in his day, Jesus was not liked by the crowds. They listened from afar, but once his message turned to not being able to stay and to build a kingdom here as a physical king, they turned on him. Within days, there would be a crowd literally yelling, crucify him. Verse 15. When he returned, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. I want you to notice even in that, there's an assumption that progress and profit would be made. It doesn't say he wanted to hear about how they had taken care of the money. It says he wanted to see how they made money. Verse 16. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Verse 17, well done, good servant, he said, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. I want you to notice a couple of things just even in that little phrase there. Again, it's a parable, so this isn't one-to-one correlation, but I want you to notice a couple of things about the master here. First of all, he is generous. The phrase that is used here for servant is a word that was used of the lowest servant in their society. 
No rights, no possessions. No, this wasn't his top managers he gave it to. This was the VPs of the organization. These were the day laborers. These were the ones that were at the lowest part. Uh, someone compared it to if someone had come to a Amazon delivery driver and said, you have made the proper deliveries at the right times for the last 30 days. I'm going to give you complete control of the entire warehouses in Hawaii and my personal residence for you to live in while you're there. And all God's people said, come on, let's go, right? And so this is the, the, the servant's. And he gives generously to them. But not only does he give them generously the, the mind of the 15, when he comes back and he says, I've made 10, he says, wow, you have made 150,000 for me. I'm going to let you rule over 10 cities. You're in control of 10 cities. Same thing I want you to notice about this master is he is crazy rich. Right? He says you have been faithful over a little, over a ten-time fold return of $150,000. You have been faithful over a little. I'll give you some more, which is ten cities. He's crazy wealthy. And look at the promises he gives to the faithful one. You're going to rule and you're going to reign with authority. You know, when we think about our own lives, we think about how generous God has been with us. And we're going to talk about this more in a few minutes. But we have more than we could ask or imagine. He has entrusted that to us. The second thing we know is he is a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has no problem in any abundance of giving to his people what they need or what he wants to bless them with. He is immensely wealthy in power in actual material, he created it all. He has it all. It is all under his control. And he has made unbelievable promises to us. See, a lot of people think that heaven is going to be a place that isn't quite as fun or as exciting as the things of earth. Y'all have heard the country songs, right? I want to go to heaven. I just don't want to go when. Right now, I got to get all my fun out now, but then I get to go to heaven when I get old and I don't want to worry about this world anymore. That's when I'll go to heaven. Not now, not in the prime of my life. And yet scripture makes it very clear that heaven is not a place where we sit on a cloud and play a harp and shoot nerf darts. Right. In fact, the descriptions of heaven for us is that we will be in some sort of authority. We will rule, we will reign, we will have work, but it will be meaningful and enjoyable and good. Work being a curse or difficult was a result of the fall. There was work before the fall. Adam worked before the fall. It was just complete. It was just rewarding. It was right. I would dare say that all of us at some point in our lives have been in that slot when we hit our perfect kind of moment of the ways God has gifted us and blessed us and the opportunity we have meets together and we feel in that moment a sense of fulfillment that is only described as something divine when we are working out in our lives what God has called us to do. 
Maybe that's in a mission field that you've worked on where you've been. Maybe that's in your job or your career. Maybe it's a moment in your family. Maybe it's just a a moment alone with the Lord. But in some way you have this fulfillment of, ah, I found the slot. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Imagine having that every day, all day, for eternity. And every day is better than the last. That's what heaven is. And he's saying to this guy, you've been faithful. I'm going to elevate you from the lowest of the positions in our society to the place where you are ruling and reigning over ten cities. What I want you to notice, though, is that this parable says that there is some sense of reward based on how we handle what God has given us here in eternity. And I've said to you before, none of us in this room that are bought by the blood of Jesus, that are saved by Jesus, are going to have a bad eternity. But I believe that our capacity and our authority and our ability to enjoy what is happening will be increased or decreased based upon our stewardship with what God has given us here. Verse 18. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. And so he said to him, you will be over five towns. See, there's some corner of comparison. Verse 26. And another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I've kept it safe in a cloth. Because I was afraid of you since you are a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said this to those standing there, taking the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. But they said, Master, he has tens. And he says, I tell you that everyone has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Here's what's fascinating to me about that little scene at the end. In verse 22, when he says, I will condemn you by what you have said, he calls him a wicked servant. It is the word used of those who are the worst actors in society. And here's what's fascinating to me about that. What exactly did this guy do that was morally wrong? He took some money. And he put it in a cloth and he saved it because he was worried about losing his master's money. He didn't embezzle it. He didn't keep it for his own. He didn't go spend it like the prodigal son parable on the luxuries and the lust of this world. He just kept it in a cloth in a drawer somewhere. And Jesus doesn't come back and say, oh, so in this parable, the master called him foolish or unwise or scared, or timid, he calls him wicked. There are a couple of ways, according to Scripture, we can be wicked. One is to do what I meant. We waste our lives on the things of this earth and the sinful things of life. And we go down a path that is contrary to what God intends for us. The second way, apparently in this parable, is that we do not rightfully steward what God has given us for the glory of his name and the spread of his kingdom. So what do we do with this? Y'all realize I hadn't preached in two weeks, so I got like seven points, all right? 
I've doubled up. I had, I had three last week, but I've got to this week. It's got more than that. They'll be quick, I promise. But here's what we do. First of all, we count our gifts. It's Thanksgiving week. We need to continually be reminded of the good things that God has entrusted us with. When I think of Thanksgiving, when I think of church, when I think of the reason count your gifts is there, it, it, the word here that is used with mine is, is a gifting kind of thing. But the word that comes to mind when I hear that is blessings. Because I think of the old hymn. I think of the old hymn singing at Southside Baptist Church. Count your blessings, name them one by one. I think I've told you all this before, but when it was Thanksgiving week, at Southside Baptist where I grew up for the first five years of my life, when my grandparents went to church and my grandfather served as uh, chairman of deacons, a discipleship training director. In that particular church, we would have we had the same four orders of worship. It was just whether it was first Sunday, second Sunday, third Sunday, or fourth Sunday. They were themed. Count your blessings was like a third Sunday. Now, when we had a fifth Sunday, it got wild around there. We might sing songs we didn't sing the other other four Sundays. But when we would get close to Thanksgiving, we'd do count your blessings. We wouldn't name them one by one. We would add extra ones in there. Name them one by one by one. And we'd try to say as many as we could in the midst of that. As a kid, I loved it. But the truth is, how much have we been given? Salvation, community of people that we love and do life with together. Living in a country that allows us to openly, freely talk about our salvation. We are the wealthiest generation of Christians in the history of the world. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. You've been gifted in addition to that with abilities personality, experiences that helps you to minister to people around you with things that you care about, with, with the, uh, just the opportunity you have to serve with people. We've never had a better opportunity to help people in need, to serve people. Count your blessings. Count your gifts. Make an inventory of what God has given you. Secondly, we have to understand our responsibility. That's not just ours to do with it whatever we want to do. It is ours to do with it what best is the steward of God's fortune is to do. Whatever gifts, whatever talent, whatever life you have is for you to use for his glory and for the sake of spreading his kingdom. That's the point of this parable. He comes out of two encounters with wealthy people. And then he talks about it's not just the wealthy that have a responsibility for how they steward what they have been given. The rich young ruler chose not to give it up and went away sad. Zacchaeus gave it up and gave back and walked away in a joyous way. It's, but it's not just the wealthy. He says it's even the lowest of those on the societal pole of understanding their needs of being at the bottom of where they are, he says, even those have a responsibility for what has been given to them. And so the question is not really how much you've been given. The question is, what are you doing with what you have been given? 
And there are some ramifications that come out of that for us. The first thing is we have been given all that we need to accomplish the will of God in our lives. I mean that individually and I mean that as a church. We have everything we need to accomplish our mission because God is the one that gives us the mission. He's the one that equips us for the mission and he never makes a mistake in assigning a task to a people or to a person. And so whatever we need to accomplish what God has called First Baptist Church Goodlettsville to accomplish, we have it. We don't need more. We don't need to seek more. We have what we need. That doesn't mean that we aren't asking for people to give what they have. We're not asking people to use what they have. Asking people to steward what they have. The question is, are we doing what God has called us to do? Because if we are, as individuals and as a church, we have everything we need to accomplish what God has given us. An implication out of this also is, we will be judged on how we use what has been entrusted to us. When you get to heaven, God's not going to look at your bank account and ask how much do you have left in that thing. He's not going to ask about how awesome the cars you had were or how wonderful the house you kept. He's going to say, what would you do with my mina? What would you do with what I gave you? How did you use it? And some of us, just to be honest, it tells us in 1 Corinthians, are going to get there as if through the fire. And we're going to go, ah, I got a little bit of stuff. Now again, if you're saved in Christ Jesus, your judgment ultimately will not be about whether or not you're going into heaven or not. That's not what it's going to be. The judgment will be How did you steward what was entrusted to you? Which is the next implication. We need to be good stewards. Now, that's a word we don't use very often anymore. Nobody's like, man, I need to go hire me a a financial steward. It's a manager. It's somebody that takes care of it. It's one of those church words that we use all the time. How's our stewardship? Are you being a good steward? And sometimes I think we talk over people and people are just like, Sure, whatever that is, I think I'm doing the best I can. It just means, are you managing the resources God has given you? Because that's what we're going to be judged on. And here's the ultimate point of this passage, I believe, and it's one that has been misinterpreted for several years now in the church. I'm convinced of this. Because when you talk to most people about what good stewardship is, right at the top of that list is saving, saving, saving. I even had someone one time tell me, well, you know in that parable, Jesus says you should have at least put it in the bank. And I said, you know, that's not the point of the story. Right? Jesus doesn't say, if you would have just put it in the bank, everything would have been fine and earned a little bit of interest. He's mad at the guy for just holding on to it, but he says you could have at least done that, but that's not acceptable. Here's the thing that we don't get taught a lot, but is biblical. And that is, good stewardship requires risk. 
It requires going out on a ledge. It requires attempting great things. And it does it for the kingdom of God, not for yourself. I'm not talking about going and spending your money on stuff that doesn't matter. Although a lot of people do that anyways. I'm talking about taking real risk for things that matter. For the kingdom of God and the glory of his name. In all of these parables that are like this, the parable of the talents, the parable of the minus, the one that is rewarded is the one that risks the most. And we, because we live in a country that does not require us to risk a lot to be a believer in Jesus, have somehow ingrained in our mind that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be safe from the culture and in how we handle ourselves. And yet following Jesus is never in Scripture something that is called safe. It is risky and it is dangerous. It is uncomfortable. I'm a big fan of the St. Louis Cardinals. And for the most part, we've been pretty good for a long time. And lately, we've just been kind of pretty good. Because the people that run the organization don't want to take a risk on signing players for a lot of money. And what happens is you end up with mediocre players for mediocre salaries. And eventually you end up with the worst season the Cardinals have had since the 1920s. Not that I'm mad about it or anything. I'm just stating and I just saw today, one the, we, we're going out, the, the general managers come out and say, we're going to get uncomfortable this year and we're going to spend money on free agents. And all of us are like, no, you're not. Because you're not going to risk it. The news came out, their number one pitching prospect just decided to go back to the team he was on because other teams, that is, the birds on the back cardinals, weren't willing to give seven years. It was too big of a risk. Here's the question I wonder when I read that. It may not have been the right move. It may have been a terrible move. Here's my question. How many things have I missed out on on seeing God move in my life and in our church because I'm not willing to take a risk that God's calling me to take? That doesn't make sense in a business financial world, but makes sense in the kingdom of God. Stewardship does not equal safe. Stewardship requires risk. So here's my question to you on this Thanksgiving week. According to Scripture, the greatest way you can show thanks to God for what you've been given is to invest it in ways that are going to grow the kingdom of God and give praise and honor to His name. It's more than just, at a, which we need to do. It's more than sitting around a table and saying, God, thank you for everything you've given us. It's how do I invest? How do I invest the salvation that God has given me and make it work in a way that I can see other people coming to Jesus Christ? I told our church at a our celebration the other night, we're on track this year to baptize more people in a single calendar year than we have baptized in my entire ministry here at First Baptist Church. And we spent, as we should, time in that business meeting talking about the lack of offering that is coming in and that it is diminishing in places. And that is something that ought to be a concern because God calls us to be faithful with our financial giving as well as other things. But 
if we are a church that sees declining giving and increasing baptisms, I would much rather see that than increasing giving and decreasing baptisms. And if you are sitting there thinking, I don't know about that, Pastor, then you need to check where your heart is with the Lord. Because we want to invest in things that matter eternally as a church and as individuals. No generation in the history of mankind has been given the access that we have to the Word of God. There is no reason in the world that we shouldn't, every single one of us, not just me because it's my job, supposedly, but all of us in this room should have a knowledge and ability. We have the ability to read the Word of God anywhere we are at any time with our devices and our cell phones craziness with the bibles that we have in our house with things that are laying around we have access to it all times nobody in the history of the world has had more access to good faithful biblical preaching now nobody's also had more access in the world to bad preaching either so be discerning now i came to church i remember this uh during pandemic one time and somebody told me that I was the second best sermon they had heard that day already. I said, how many have you heard? Is it noon? They said four. I was like, well, I guess that's top half. That's all right. And I said, who was the best one? They said, Tony Evans. I said, I'll take second to Tony Evans any day. You never had more access to... So us having a lack of knowledge of Scripture, that's on us. That's not being stewards of what God's given us because God's given us that ability to have it. How are you using your career? Not just to get a check, not just to provide for your family, although I understand that's vital. How are you using your career to advance the kingdom of God? How are you using your family? How are you training those that have been given to your care, your kids and your grandkids, as you gather around the table for Thanksgiving? How can you look at that room and think to myself, how can we as a family be activated for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom? How are you using your time? Now, honestly, that's the one resource that we have the exact amount as everybody has had before us. Although if you count longevity of life, we actually have a little more than most people have ever had. But how are you using it? The 24 hours in a day, the 7 days in a week, the 365 days in a year, how are you using it? And then yes, how are you using the financial gifts that you've been given? Are you being faithful to being good stewards of taking risks for the glory of the kingdom of God. Every one of us in this room have everything we need to accomplish what God has, has called us to do. Every one of us in this room will be judged based on how we use what God's given us. The question is, are we being good stewards of what he has? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to understand what it is that we need to do to shepherd what you've been given us, to use what you have given us for your glory, that we would be like the one that earned ten, that we would just be continually seeking ways for you to be glorified and your kingdom expanded. And Lord, even if that means that we take risks that don't pay off, Lord, that you, we know, are in complete control and we're trusting you in the midst of it. Lord, we pray in this moment that 
whatever it is that you're calling us to do, that we would just be faithful to say yes and respond as you called us to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.